Okay, we're back with part two of the horrors of post-op complications. When we left off, we were just talking about gerontological considerations, talking about how they're going to be more sensitive to opiates, so acetaminophen would be preferred for mild pain, and the opiate dose should be reduced 25 to 50%, so they should probably only be getting one Percocet or maybe two Norco, uh, but, you know, case by case, but the, the elderly will be more sensitive to that stuff. So the other thing to think about with the elderly is post-op delirium. So delirium occurs in about two-thirds of ICU patients, 42% of elderly patients, 52% of surgical patients. So you can see from that that that's a lot of our population. So it's um, quite likely to happen. You'll see it a lot. And it is underdiagnosed or misdiagnosed a lot of the time. So differences between delirium and dementia. So when older people act confused, people want to say, oh, they just have dementia. Well, not necessarily. Uh, dementia is a gradual, chronic death of the neurons and it's irreversible. So they're going downhill and they're not getting any better. Delirium has a sudden onset, it's acute, the neurons are impaired, they have global amnesia, so they don't really know where they are, and it's reversible. <coughs> so some causes of post-op delirium, uh, medications are a big, a big cause of it in the post-op environment. Sensory deficits, so let them have their glasses and their hearing aids. If they can't see and they can't hear what's going on, they're gonna end up being confused and possibly combative. Low oxygen could be a cause, um, infection, retention of urine or stool, an ictal state, which would mean a seizure, underhydration, undernutrition, there could be other metabolic causes like diabetes, uh, sodium abnormality, they're up or down, they may have had anticholinergics. Their pain might not be treated very well. Sleep deprivation is a big thing too. And you know, in the hospital, people are not sleeping very well because people are coming in disrupting them every you know, hour or two. Um, so that, that is a big, big cause of it. And plus, it's hard for them to know what time of day it is. If the room is not really bright, um, they might think it's the middle of the night and it's the afternoon. So um, orienting them to the time of day Taking them out of the room for walks is a good thing you can do. Um, and just avoid disrupting their sleep is, is a really nice thing. So you're going to have to um, minimize, you want to minimize sleeping meds. Sleeping meds are going to complicate things. Avoid waking them up during the night if you can. I mean, we always want to combine our tasks so that we're not bothering the patient any more than necessary. Uh, but you can, you can combine your vitals with medications and um, whatever else you need to do with the patient. So let them sleep as much as possible. Use non-opioids when possible. I talked about that. Acetaminophen is probably going to be the preferred meth method of pain medication. Avoid catheters and avoid restraints at all costs. We want to avoid restraints. So if we can get a family member present, that would be great. If not, maybe we can arrange for a sitter. But we really want to avoid restraints because that is only going to make things worse. Making sure they have their glasses and hearing aids. Avoid benzodiazepines. That's another thing is that people, um, when, when older people start getting agitated, the nurse will say, oh, let's just give him some Ativan. He's, you know, he's acting up. Let's give him some Ativan. That's going to make it worse. So in elderly, we want to avoid benzos. Another big thing is just hydrate them. So ambulate and hydrate, just like everything else. Those are going to be um, really key aspects in preventing and treating post-op delirium. So we're going to have to perform a medical evaluation. So, you know, once we do a good nursing assessment, get the doctor involved, 
um, then the doctor can help you adjust the medications as necessary. But you know, you have your nursing judgment and you can give one or two pills or you can give Tylenol or you can give Norco. So, you know, use your judgment and adjust the meds as, as you're able. Make changes to the surroundings if necessary. That means like leaving the blinds up during the daytime so they know that it's daytime. Um, make sure all of their stuff is right near where they need it to be. Order any appropriate tests. So if, if they're acting confused, another thing that could be going on with elderly people especially is uh, urinary tract infection. So let's maybe do a UA. And if they have a catheter, uh, we want to get that out as soon as possible. Help improve the sleep, and that would be by, um, you know, just not interrupting them so much. Engage in therapeutic activities, get them up and moving, get them participating with PT. Um, if there's a pet therapy or anything like that on the unit, engage them in that to get them more active. And do not give antipsychotics or benzodiazepines, and, okay, and unless they are threatening harm to themselves or others. So we want to avoid that stuff as long as possible. Okay, moving on towards potential alterations in GI function. Some different nursing diagnoses here. We may have nausea, that's very common in post-op patients. Imbalanced nutrition, less than body requirements if someone's frail and they're not eating. Um, another potential complication would be paralytic ileus, where their gut just doesn't wake up uh, after a while. And then another potential complication would be hiccups. And we all have had hiccups and they're a little bit annoying, but you know, they usually pass. But when you've had them for eight hours or 24 hours, it's pretty terrible. So that is, that is something that is not common, but it, uh, it does happen at times. So let's talk about nausea and vomiting. So is nausea a sign or a symptom? Nausea is a symptom because that's what's felt by the patient. The sign would be the vomit that you see. And what are some things that it's caused by? Well, most commonly post-op, it's gonna be the anesthetic agents, the gases, the medications, the opioids. Also, they could have delayed gastric emptying because the stomach, the GI tract hasn't woken up yet. So they have slowed peristalsis and the acid is developing in their stomach and it's just kind of sitting there making them feel gross. And they might resume oral intake too soon. Sometimes people get out of surgery and they feel like they're hungry because they haven't eaten in you know 12 hours or more and they want to eat something. Their gut's not ready for that. So they might end up uh, throwing that up. So some interventions. Um, there's a lot of medications, but before we get into medications, some things we can do is, is prevent the nausea. <clears throat> um, a good medication for that is Zofran. If the anesthesiologist gives that, great, because then they won't have it. Also, scopolamine patches are nice. That goes behind the ear. Uh, so that's a way that they can prevent it, but we don't uh, really, we don't do that. That would be something the anesthesiologist would do. Um, remove noxious stimuli. If they come in and bring the dinner tray and it smells kind of gross, that makes them feel nauseous, so take that away. Uh, complementary therapies. What are some complementary things we can do? We've got aromatherapy. So um, there's different uh, flavors of, of essential oils available sometimes on, on some units. Peppermint, lemon, ginger are good for that. Ginger ale or any kind of soda if you don't have ginger ale. Putting pressure on the wrist, there's a pressure point in the center of the, of the underside of your wrist you can push on. And then if when, the quickest thing you can do when someone reports nausea and you want to go get them the medication that they have, take an alcohol pad out of your pocket because you should always have alcohol pads in your pocket and open it up and put it on their underneath their nose, on their mustache area and tell them to just inhale that. 
So that's a type of aromatherapy and it is equally effective as Zofran. So Zofran is the first medication we want to talk about and that's a selective serotonin receptor antagonist on Dancitron. And the pharmacotherapeutics of it is that it prevents nausea and vomiting. So it prevents better than it treats. So unfortunately, that's why it's good if the anesthesiologist gives it, um, but a lot of times they don't. And so that's the first line of defense that the surgeon has prescribed for you to give on the floor. And unfortunately, it only works about 50% of the time. So once somebody already reports that they're nauseated or they're puking, it's really not gonna work. Um, adverse effects, hypertension and anxiety. The next step up from that is usually metoclopramide or Reglan. And this one does work pretty well. Um, if it's given IV, the onset is really quick, one to three minutes, and it lasts one to two hours. And what it does, it's a, pro, it's a prokinetic, so it moves the stuff out of the stomach. It gets the stomachs to start moving, and then the, the stuff is out of there, so then they're not going to feel nauseated anymore. It does have some CNS effects. It can make them restless or drowsy. It can lead to depression or extrapyramidal side effects. Um, it says here, give 30 minutes before meal or chemo to maximize effects. So if somebody is actively nauseated, we're not going to give them uh, a, a pill um, because they're going to throw it up, right? But if, if they're not nauseated, we're giving it preventatively, like if somebody has chemo or we're trying to get them to eat because they're, they've had a, a stomach surgery uh, or an, an, any kind of intestinal surgery, you might give it to them uh, 30 minutes before the meal so that they're able to eat better. The next class up is promethazine or phenergan. And phenergan tends to work really well on almost everybody. It is very quickly IV, one to three minutes, and it lasts four or five hours up to 12 hours, depending on the person. Big side effect is CNS depression, so it makes them sleep. It also does respiratory depression. So we need to be careful if we're giving this along with opioids, which we probably are because patients are in pain, so they've had their pain meds. And respiratory depression is something that needs to be carefully monitored. We used to give higher doses of this. It used to be 25 to 50 milligrams and people died. So they've decreased the doses and now it's usually 6.25 or 12 and a half milligrams is the max you should see given. But it works really well. So our assessment, nursing assessment for gastrointestinal complications, we're going to listen to the abdomen in all four quadrants. We're listening for bowel sounds, uh, frequency, the pitch, characteristics, it is to be expected that they're going to be absent or diminished in the immediate post-op period because everything's been paralyzed. If they've had general anesthesia, everything's paralyzed and the gut is going to be the last thing to wake up. So um, expected to be minimal. And we're listening for the return of bowel sounds accompanied by flatus once they're passing gas and they have bowel sounds, that's when it's okay for them to eat. We don't want to put anything in there sooner than that. They can resume oral intake when they have the gag reflex, but that's like water and ice. We don't want to put anything you know, solid in their stomach until they have um, bowel sounds and they're passing gas. So NPO until we have the return of bowel sounds. Especially for anyone with abdominal surgery, they're going to be a lot slower to recover because their guts have all been pulled out and manipulated and they're slowly waking up and they're not happy. So somebody who's had a GI surgery, they're going to have a much slower advancement of their diet. So they're gonna get clear liquids for probably a day or two, and then maybe full liquids, and then maybe soft food. So it's gonna be a much slower progression where if it's somebody who's had a knee replacement and their gut is otherwise fine, they can have a regular you know, pizza, hamburger for dinner that night. 
So when somebody is NPO, we want to make sure that we're doing careful mouth care. Uh, brush those teeth. Uh, I don't know how many times I go into a room and the toothbrush and, and kidney basin is you know, in its wrapper, out of reach. They haven't brushed their teeth in 24 hours. It's disgusting. So make people brush their teeth. And if somebody has had an NG or a uh, GI surgery, they might have nausea that we need to treat with antiemetics. And if it persists for a while, we're going to give them an NG tube. So something we can do that is going to increase bowel function is early and frequent ambulation. So get them up walking, ambulate and hydrate with everybody and assess regularly for the resumption of normal peristalsis. Next thing to talk about is constipation. This is very common and it can be related to a number of things. It can be functional, like a change in routine, the positioning, nobody likes to poop in bed, uh, lack of privacy. Most rooms are um, single rooms now, so they don't have a roommate, but in some cases they still do. But in any case, usually the CNA is hanging outside the door or something, or if they're on a bedside commode, they're just behind that little curtain, so it's awkward. Um, they also may have, they most likely have immobility and a decrease in activity. So those are functional reasons. Psychological could be anxiety or fear, especially if they've had any kind of colorectal surgery. They're going to be afraid that they're going to tear out their sutures or that's going to hurt. Mechanical problems, um, decreased potassium. Uh, can be a cause because um, we need potassium for muscle contraction and the, the guts are, are smooth muscles. So if potassium is low, they're going to have, um, their, their, their smooth muscles are not going to move. There could also be a post-surgical obstruction. Something could have happened during the surgery. It could have uh, twisted the bowel or uh, maybe it's just a paralytic ileus. It's not getting through. Physiological, less than adequate fluid intake or increased fluid loss. So if they had a large open surgery, they've been losing a lot of fluids during that time, or they've, you know, they've been MPO for eight hours or more, um, so their fluid level is low and that's gonna dry things out. And then probably the biggest thing is pharmacological opiates. So opiates that we've given them is going to um, definitely constipate people. So constipation as evidenced by Frequency less than their normal pattern. The abdomen may be rigid or distended, firm. Bowel sounds are going to be hypoactive or hyperactive, uh, more likely hypoactive in the immediate post-op. They may be experiencing straining, feelings of pressure in the rectum, or they may have a hard-formed stool or frequent liquid stools. And what that's about is there's a blockage, solid blockage, and then liquid is seeping out around it. So that's the evidence. So that's what you're seeing that lets you know they have constipation. So thinking about your care plan, we have a problem, constipation, evidence by means how do we know what's happening? This is the evidence, this is what we see that leads us to diagnose that. And what's it related to? Well, it could be from surgery, it could be from opiates, all the things that we just talked about. And so an important thing is that our goal is going to fix the problem. Okay, so if you're, problem is constipation, your goal is that they will have a bowel movement. I've seen care plans where people say they have constipation and their goal is they will walk around the unit four times today. What is that? That's an intervention. So make sure that your goal is going to fix the problem. The outcome is that we want them to have a bowel movement. So with constipation, we want to have bowel sounds in all four quadrants. We want a soft formed stool and we want the patient to be comfortable. So monitoring the abdomen for shape, firmness, bowel sounds, frequency, and pitch. 
monitor for passage of, of gas. So just ask them every time you come in there if they've passed gas yet. Get them up moving. Nutrition, help them choose good foods. Medications, let's cut back on the opiates as soon as we can. And then teach them, just let them know that this is normal and they need to have um, a lot of extra water, they need to walk. And then other medications that we'll give them would be stool softeners, laxatives, things like that. Some people are gonna get several laxatives in combination and they may say, oh, I don't need that. I don't wanna be pooping the bed. Um, let them know, you know, they don't work that fast and you do need them because of all the medications that you've, that you've taken in over the last day or so. The next thing to talk about is bowel obstruction and we just uh, introed it a few minutes ago. Um, but they can be mechanical, mostly occurring in the small intestine because it's smaller so it is more easily clogged up. And common causes surgical adhesions, that scar tissue that develops between um, the bowel where it kind of just sticks together. Hernias, that's where a loop of bowel comes out through the abdominal wall and if it gets twisted then that's uh, really bad, that's going to need surgery for that. There could be tumors, it could be cancers or non-cancerous tumors anywhere. Carcinoma tends to occur more commonly in the large bowel, colon cancer, um, but that you know they could occur anywhere. Diverticular disease also is in the large bowel. There can also be Crohn's disease that can cause bowel obstructions. So there's a lot of things um, that can cause them after surgery. Non-mechanical would be neuromuscular or vascular disorders. So paralytic ileus is the common thing there. And that's where we have a lack of intestinal peristalsis. So the gut just hasn't woken up yet, it's not moving. So there's gonna be no bowel sounds and that can be related to abdominal surgery, peritonitis, an inflammatory response, or an electrolyte abnormality like low potassium. So again, low potassium leads to muscle weakness uh, and the bowel is, is uh, smooth muscle. The other thing is intestines that may have been manipulated through um, any kind of abdominal surgery, whether they're working on the GI tract or not, it could be a bladder surgery, but they've had to move the intestines out of the way. And when they put them back in there, they don't put them all back in order, they just kind of dump it back in. So um, if they get twisted or unhappy in some way, that can lead to an obstruction. So our assessment, um, assess for pain, vomiting, distension. They'll have hyperactive bowel sounds above the obstruction and then none below. And that's because above the obstruction, the gut's working really hard, trying to churn and push things through, and then below there, nothing's happening, so it's absent. Interventions, first we'll start out with a nasogastric tube, and it could be a longer tube to go into the intestine, um, and they'll try to suck things out, uh, but it may eventually lead to a bowel resection, where they have to go in and cut out the part. If there's been um, muscular or vascular neuro damage, they're gonna have to cut out that part of the intestine, they'll just do a resection and they'll just put it back together. So to wrap up this section here, so some bowel assessment things, when will we perform a bowel assessment on a patient? Well, it's gonna be uh, with the head to toe, of course, in the morning, like you do with everybody. And you're gonna to wanna to do a bowel assessment on everybody, whether they had a bowel surgery or not, because we wanna assess whether their bowel is woken up yet, because we wanna know if we can feed them and if we can give them oral medication as well. Anybody that's had a bowel surgery is gonna need much more frequent bowel assessments. That's gonna be your focused assessment, no more than every four hours. Uh, what patients are at a higher risk for a bowel obstruction if food is consumed too soon? Well, anybody surgically 
uh, but especially if they've had surgery on the GI tract. During the night, the patient consumed 200 milliliters of liquid. Does that mean they're now ready to eat a regular breakfast? No, we would have to assess it. Liquid is different than food. So we would have to assess for bowel sounds and if they're passing gas. And if so, then they can have a regular diet as long as that's been okayed, if that's been ordered by the, by the surgeon. And what subjective data could you obtain from your patient to help you decide if oral food can be started? And that would be the bowel sounds and if they're passing gas. Okay, the next thing is fluid volume excess. A lot of fluid going on. So this is gonna be related to the stress response. Excessive IV fluids, blood transfusion, chronic diseases like CHF or chronic renal failure, urinary retention. So anything that's causing extra fluid to be on board. And so how are we gonna monitor for hydration? We're going to check your vitals. So the BP would be high if they're holding on to a lot of fluids. Always check eyes and nose. It's very, very important in the post-op period to assess eyes and nose. And a lot of people, nurses don't wanna do that. They, they think, oh, they don't have a fluid problem. Why do I need to assess that? Well, how do you know if they don't have a fluid problem if you're not assessing it, if you're not keeping careful track of eyes and nose? So you really need to do that. Lung sounds, if they have a fluid overload, they're gonna have um, crackly lungs are going to have difficulty breathing. They may be short of breath and their urine output. <clears throat> so if they have fluid excess, the normal body process would be to have a lot of urine coming out, right? And if they are putting out a lot of urine and they're in fluid volume excess, what would the specific gravity be? It would be low because the urine would be dilute. So if you drank a gallon of water, you'd have to go pee and it would be pretty, pretty clear, right? So that means your specific gravity is low. Now that's if they're putting out urine. Sometimes the fluid volume excess might be caused because they're not putting out urine. So then we can't really even assess the specific gravity. But there are times when lack of urine output, meaning urinary retention, is the cause of the fluid volume problem. Okay, they're holding on to fluid and that's fairly common after surgery. We'll get into that in a little while. So fluid overload can occur when IV fluid is administered too quickly, when there's chronic diseases, if a patient is older, they're not able to accommodate extra fluid. They're not able to compensate for, uh, you know, their, their heart and their vascular system can't compensate for the extra fluid that's been on board. So we want to assess them. They may have labored breathing, crackles in the lungs, decreased air gas exchange. The IV, if the IV is infusing at 100 mils an hour, your patient's O2 sat is 88, and you're just going in there doing an assessment, what do you think you should do? They're on room air, so we can put them on oxygen. We can sit them up and then maybe turn down that IV. It's at 100. That's a pretty basic amount, but if they're experiencing trouble breathing and their lungs are, are wet sounding, um, we probably need to turn that down. And those that are going to be at greatest risk of overload, again, is going to be anybody who's elderly or has heart or kidney problems. Next thing is fluid volume deficit. <coughs> That's where they're really dry. So it's a state in which an individual experiences decreased intravascular, interstitial, and or intracellular volume. So they're dry. It can be related to extremes of age and weight, and it can be excessive loss through normal or abnormal routes. So there can be blood loss during surgery. They've had a lot of bleeding in there. 
Third spacing means loss of fluid outside the vascular space into sub-Q tissues. So third spacing is when fluid is in a space that does you no good. It's not in your vascular space. It's hanging out in your abdomen or somewhere that's not doing you any good. Wound drainage, maybe they have a wound that's been seeping, weeping the whole time, or maybe they have a drain that keeps filling up and you keep emptying it. So that's, again, really important with eyes and nose to monitor your drains because that is fluid loss and it can be a lot. They could have nausea and vomiting, or if they have an NG tube, the NG drainage, there's a lot of that. Decreased fluid intake is pretty likely because they've been NPO for several hours before surgery and during surgery, and then afterwards they're just groggy and nauseous and they don't feel like drinking, so decreased fluid intake. And increased fluid going out, so they might have been uh, voiding a lot or vomiting a lot, so they've lost a lot of fluid. So monitoring their hydration, their lung sounds would be uh, normal, just dry sounding if they if they have low fluid. Their BP is going to be low. Again, eyes and nose are going to be so important. And it, again, the urine output might go one of two ways. So if you have fluid volume deficit, you're probably not putting out much urine because your body's trying to conserve it. So it's trying to hold on to what little you have. But if you are putting out any urine, the specific gravity is going to be high because it's going to be very concentrated because you're dry. So, you know, if you have, <clears throat> you, you've been, um, not drinking much and you go to the bathroom your urine's kind of dark concentrated so that's what's happening in fluid volume deficit what's going to happen to cardiac output and tissue perfusion uh it's going to go down so their heart's not pumping out as much volume with every beat because there just isn't that much volume in there and then the tissue perfusion is going to suffer so the blood's not going to be easily getting to the brain and to the kidneys and all over to the essential organs uh, because there's just not enough fluid and think about it, what is left in the veins is going to be kind of thick. So it's going to be hard for the body to pump it around. So what can we do to fix it? Well, increased fluids is the obvious answer, right? So turn up the IV, get them drinking. If they have um, third spacing, meaning they have a, a fluid in their abdomen or in the tissues, we might get an order for albumin, which is going to act like a sponge and pull that fluid back in. So another thing to think about here is that fluid loss contributes to electrolyte imbalances. And electrolyte imbalances can be fatal. I mean, they, they can be very serious. The stress response also contributes to increased clotting factors. That, along with fluid deficit, puts your patient at risk for clots. So the blood is very thick. And the stress response, they've got increased clotting factors, so they are likely to throw a clot. Low electrolytes. Um, depending on what electrolyte it is, it can be very dangerous. They also lead to changes in osmolarity, which leads to fluid shift. So if the, the uh, electrolytes are more concentrated on one side or the other of the membranes, the fluid is going to travel in that direction to try to equalize it. And if they have low potassium, that's going to put them at risk for dysrhythmias, which can be fatal. If they have low sodium, they're going to have brain changes. They're going to get very confused. They could become unconscious. Uh, so just lots of things there. So after surgery, the body is trying to uh, re-equalize, uh, it's seeking equilibrium of the fluids. So hematocrit uh, can go down with blood loss and also with the re-equilibration of the extracellular fluid. So the extracellular fluid is, is being pulled back into the vasculature, which lowers your hematocrit. So extra fluid is shifting to the vascular space. Hematocrit is represented as a percentage of the solids that are in the blood. And so if extra fluid is rushing in there, it's gonna lower that. 
So our urine output is going to be decreased. That's a defining characteristic. And if they are putting out any urine, the specific gravity we said was going to be high. So it's concentrated. Blood pressure's down. Decreased turgor. This is where if you pinch up their skin, it's going to kind of stay that way. Tenting. I don't know if you've ever seen that. It's pretty weird to see, but it just kind of stays there. It doesn't fall back down. Dry mucous membranes. So their, their mouth and their tongue and their lips are going to be all uh, dry. Sudden weight loss, this is important. When we have uh, ch quick changes in weight, we wanna think fluid first. Their weight just didn't go up because they had a big dinner or it didn't go down because they were MPO for eight hours, right? So when they have rapid weight changes, think fluid. One pound of weight gain equals 500 mLs. So whenever we've had a rapid weight change, we wanna think about their fluids. They're gonna have decreased venous fillings, so the veins are gonna be really small. <coughs> And um, you better hope they have an IV in because if you have to put an IV in during that time, it's going to be, once they're already dehydrated, it's going to be really hard to find the veins. You're going to have to call the IV team. So hematocrit, again, it's going to be up if they're dehydrated. It's going to be down if there's active blood loss. Um, H and H are all often going to be messed up after surgery, and that can be because of blood loss and because of that re-equalization of the, um, the fluids. So our expected outcomes for fluid deficit, we would like our eyes and nose to be within 200 to 500 mLs of each other. So we're never gonna have a thousand in and a thousand out, right? It's not gonna be exact like that, but we would like it to be within two to 500. So maybe 1500 in and a thousand out, that's, that's 500, that's stretching it, but somewhere around there. We'd, if we check urine specific gravity, we'd like it to be within normal limits. The blood pressure and heart rate should be within normal limits for that patient. Mucous membranes should be moist and they should be ANO times three. That's another thing. It can lead to confusion when they are dehydrated. So um, give them fluid and get them reoriented. Gerontologic considerations. The clinical manifestations of a fluid imbalance may be subtle. And so that's why we need to pay very close attention to the elderly. The fluid deficit can also cause delirium, which we talked about earlier. They have decreased cardiac reserve. They're unable to handle large shifts in fluid like a younger person would be able to compensate for it. They have decreased renal function too. So it's not uncommon that they're not uh, putting out um, fluid because their kidneys are not being perfused as well and they're not working as well. So dehydration is common, age-related thinning of the skin and loss of strength and elasticity. So their skin may, be, uh, may not have good turgor anyway. So what we want to do to monitor fluid volume status, eyes and nose. It's the easiest thing to do and it's the most commonly skipped thing with nurses because they're lazy. So we want to make sure that the patient is voiding in a urinal or a hat. Make sure there is a hat in the bathroom. Um, again, they just think, well, they, didn't have, they don't have a fluid issue. We don't need to worry about it. Anybody can have a fluid issue and as we're going to see as the classes progress, it could very quickly lead to hypovolemic shock and death. So yeah, let's do eyes and nose, okay? It's easy. Fluid volume challenge is something that we might do if somebody um, hasn't put out any urine or, or very little urine. A fluid volume challenge is where we give a bolus and check to see if their blood pressure goes up and if they start making urine. And if it does, if the blood pressure goes up and the urine starts being made, that means they're okay, they just need more fluid. If it doesn't, if we give them this fluid and nothing changes, no urine output comes out, that means they're at a fixed specific gravity and that happens when with renal failure. So as long as we give them a bump of fluid 
and they start making urine, they're okay. And that just means they need more fluid. Okay. So, um, do a fluid volume challenge whenever you have someone who's not putting out urine and how much urine do we want out? 30 mLs an hour. So we need to stay on top of that and take a look at what it was on the last shift because the, you know, you always got to think that the last nurse maybe is not so bright and not paying such good attention. And so you want to make sure that your patient is, has urinated adequately. The next few slides are a case study on a little old lady and she's got some fluid problems and there is some eyes and nose exercises for you to do. So um, just take some time and review that. <laughs> Next is urinary retention, and that is a state in which the individual experiences incomplete emptying of the bladder. And it's very common after surgery, and it can be related to medications that they've had. There could be anticholinergic medications, it can be the stress response, it can be trauma to the urethra if they had a foley in, they had it put in and then taken out, the, the urethra is swollen. Uh, so just a lot of things, but it's very common after surgery. So what we can do to prevent the bladder from filling more than normal is um, get them to the bathroom, encourage them to try, and we can do bladder scanning. We're going to be assessing them. We can first just feel and you know assess if their bladder is distended. If they tell you they feel like they have to pee but they can't, then we can do a bladder scan and figure out exactly what is in there. And there will be protocols that the hospital will have um, depending on how much is in there. Do we need to uh, put do a straight cath or, or what, or maybe we just wait and check it again. Who is going to be at greater risk of not feeling their bladder get full? That's going to be the elderly and then anybody who's had a spinal or an epidural because that area is all numb so they don't feel it. We want to, as part of our assessment, look at the urine. We want to look at it for quantity and quality, noting the color, the amount, consistency, and odor. Um, assess indwelling catheters for patency. So the catheters, if they have one in, it should be flowing. We want urine output to be at least 0.5 milliliters per kilogram per hour, which is about 30 to 50. So make sure that we're always checking the eyes and nose and adding it up and making sure that they're um, voiding enough. So we want to void at least 180 mils within six hours. After someone's had a fully removed, now this may vary by policy, but um, in general, when someone's had a Foley out, they need to void within six hours. So you need to note when that Foley was taken out. If it was removed at 6 a.m., that means before you go to lunch at noon, they need, need to be peeing. And you better start reminding them at 10, and at 11, you better start threatening them that they're going to get that Foley put back in if they don't, if they are not able to go. So they need to keep trying. Uh, and that is your responsibility. So when you have a patient and you know the Foley's been removed that morning, it's your responsibility to check the times because I've had students neglect that and we come back from lunch at 1.30, 2 o'clock and the patient hasn't voided and we do a bladder scan and they've got a thousand mils in there. That's not good. That's a definite you for the day. So your response, it's your patient, your responsibility. So we need to have at least 180 out within six hours. We want it to be clear yellow urine. Uh, this is an area of confusion. Clear is not a color. Clear just means not cloudy. Okay. So it's normally going to be yellow. If it's if it looks almost clear, you can say pale yellow, but clear refers to cloudy. Uh, we'd like it to have a normal urine odor. 
Uh, we don't want him to have any ur uh, urgency, frequency, or dysuria. We want him just to be able to void as normal. No signs and symptoms of distension or pain. No fever, chills. If we uh, do a culture on the urine, we don't want to see any white blood cells or bacteria. Something that helps is normal positioning. So for men, if you're going to give them a urinal, um, it's not really going to be very easy to do while they're lying in bed. Sometimes they, if they lie on their side, that'll help. But the most normal thing would be to sit on the edge of the bed or stand. Now with uh, a lot of patients, we don't want them standing by themselves, especially orthopedic patients. They can have the walker in front of them and then somebody can be helping support them. Um, but then there's somebody standing right next to them. So that make it, might make it hard to pee. Uh, but you know, see what's going to work for them. If they're not able to walk to the bathroom, we can get them a bedside commode. And we'll do a bladder scan, again, if it's been a while and they feel distended and we want to see what's in them. Uh, if there is, uh, based on the protocol, it might be 400 mLs, let's say. If it's over 400 mLs, they'll say to straight cath them. And why would we do a straight cath instead of putting in a Foley? Because less chance of infection, it's just in and out. We just got to get the urine out. And the hope is, is that um, in the next six hours, they're they will be recovered somewhat. The swelling will go down in the urethra or the medications will be worn off or they will have drank more and then they're going to be able to void on their own. So that's why we just generally do that once. Now sometimes we do have to do a straight cath again and that's that's not fun for the patient but you got to do what you got to do. We can't, can't have their bladder explode. Next is wound infections and a surgical patient can be at risk for infection, but there's a lot of things that we do to prevent post-op infections, like using uh, sterile technique in the, in the OR, and there's um, that could go wrong. We could have a break in sterile technique. There could be an infected implant that we're putting in. Uh, there could be hospital-acquired acquired infection uh, just from you know the person down the hall. Everybody has an IV. A lot of people have a Foley, so infections can enter in any number of places. Drains is another area and it can go right to that wound. So we're not really gonna see the signs of infection for three to five days. And risk factors is that they have inadequate primary defenses, which means the skin has been broken, and inadequate secondary defenses, which means due to the stress response, their immunity is a little bit low. So signs and symptoms, you know, your infection symptoms, they're gonna have fever, redness, pus, edema, white blood cells, uh, high white blood cells in the, in the labs. The edema causes pain by pressing on the nerves. So um, all of those things are going to be common for infections. <clears throat> and that temp, again, it's going to be three to five days. So a temp day one and two, we're not going to worry about it as in terms of infection. Next after that would be dehiscence and evisceration. So these two are similar, but dehiscence is just a separation of the skin and evisceration is when something protrudes. So this usually happens post-op day five or six. It can be accompanied by wound infection or abdominal distension. There's something underneath pressing, putting pressure on that incision and it just pops open. And there's gonna be extravasation of fluid. So whether you see it or not, there's fluid evaporating, so there's fluid loss, so we need to increase their IV fluid. Um, if it's eviscerated, that means there's a loop of bowel or some, some organ is sticking out. So causes the inflammatory process. There's something pushing underneath there. The inflammation is pushing. It could be a pocket of fluid that's developed under the tissue. It could be a, like a seroma or a hematoma, and that's preventing the tissue from coming together. 
remember granulation tissue is not very strong. It's never going to be full strength of regular tissue. So if they're going to break something, if something's going to break out from inside, it's going to come through an old incision. And then also obesity is a cause because fat is less vascular, it's slower to heal, and it's also hard to suture. So they may not get a real good um, seal on that. So our interventions, we want to cover the viscera with saline. A sterile soaked saline cloth would be ideal. Keep it moist. Increase the IV and monitor for shock because again, they're losing fluid. You may or may not see it, but they're losing fluids. And then they're likely going to go back in for surgery to have that uh, put back put back in and put back together. And how we can prevent dehiscence is abdominal binders, taking care when moving patients and getting them up to walk, um, just helping them hold that, you know, hold that incision together. Next thing is DVT or VTE, deep vein thrombosis. The preferred term is now venous thromboembolism. And embolism is when we have a clot that breaks free. So phlebitis, let's talk about that first. Phlebitis is an inflamed superficial vein with a thrombus, which is a clot. 65% of patients are gonna get phlebitis with an IV. 65% of patients with an IV will have it. Uh, so a thrombus is just a clot in a vein. If it's deep, it's a deep vein thrombosis. And if it breaks free, then it's an embolism. So it's, embolism is just a clot that's traveling. Uh, it affects 300 to 600,000 patients a year. And fun fact, it's more common in tall people. The risk climbs with height. So we've got um, a clot that forms and then the blood kind of just backs up behind it. So that causes edema and swelling and pain. The color, it's gonna be kind of pink or red. It may be warm, but a lot of them are clinically silent. So we don't know that someone has a clot. Um, but we, any, any, swelling in a leg or a complaint of pain or anything like that we want to be careful about. So there's three big things that predispose someone to a clot and it's called Virchow's triad and this is really important. And you'll see as we talk about these that each patient, each post-op patient is at risk. They have all of these things. So the first thing is venous stasis and that results from immobility. So are your post-op patients immobile? Yes. Or less mobile than they were before surgery? Yes. Damage to endothelium. That can be from the surgery fractures, a burn, any kind of trauma, or just intravascular catheterization. Does everyone have an IV? Yes. Hypercoagulability, the stress response. Everybody has that too, right? It can also be, um, they can be hypercoagulable because of hormone deficiencies. Uh, they could have clotting deficiencies. They could have, they can be on the birth control pill and they can be dehydrated. So they're in some state of hypercoagulability. So that's what Virchow's triad is, venous stasis, damaged endothelium, and hypercoagulability. And everybody has that. So that's why we need to assess for people's clot risks. Anyone who's had a previous DVT is also gonna be at high risk. And anyone who's a smoker is gonna be at high risk. <clears throat> so there's various assessment tools that the doctors are gonna look at. And I've got a few examples listed here, um, but that's just gonna help them determine what the risk is, how high the risk is, and that's going to help them decide what to do for treatment. So they may just do uh, TEDs or SCDs, or they may just do oral anticoagulants, or they may do a combination. So that's gonna be up to the doctor, and that's how they determine it is just by, um, by doing these risk assessments. So the biggest thing that you can do as a nurse, therapeutic interventions, is fluids, push fluids, and 
Mobilization. So again, ambulate and hydrate. Always good for everything. Early mobilization. Get them up walking. If they're on bed rest, they can at least do plantar and dorsiflexion. Hopefully we can at least get them up to a chair for meals. That's, that's movement. That's good. But ideally we'd want them walking as much as possible. Some other things that we are going to give them possibly is um, compression stockings or TED hose. Uh, it's thromboembolic deterrent. That's what TED stands for. TED hose. These are, um, they have a size, they're sized. So we want to make sure that we have the right size, small, medium, large, extra large. So make sure we're using the right size. This is for somebody who's got a low or moderate risk with anticoagulants. If they're going to have moderate risk, they're going to have TEDs and an anticoagulant. We want to make sure that they're put on right. No uh, rolling them down if they're too big. Get a, get a smaller size. If we roll them down at the top, that forms a tourniquet. We don't want any wrinkles in it. That's going to cause skin problems. We want to make sure the seam is on the medial side. If there's a seam, the heel is in the right spot and they should be removed one hour every shift. And patient education, just tell them what these are for, why we're making them wear these. And um, if they have hairy legs, it's gonna kind of pull the hair on the legs so it's uncomfortable, um, but that is that is what it is. The next thing up is sequential compression devices or SCDs, and these are for moderate to high risk patients. They increase the venous return just by squeezing the legs and pushing the blood up to back up to the heart. They have to be put on correctly and they have to be the right size and worn continuously, except again, off an hour every shift. They have to, um, the, these are prophylactic. They're not to be used with a confirmed VTE and the risk factor is that it could lead to a PE. Now, there's no concrete evidence of this happening, but all the manufacturers of SCDs recommend this, that don't use it on somebody with an active DVT. So we should just use TEDs and anticoagulant meds if someone has a confirmed BTE. Okay, now we're going to get into anticoagulant therapy. And before we do that, let's talk about hemostasis. We're going to have a very simplified clotting cascade. So when tissue gets damaged, the first thing that happens is the tissue releases thromboplastin. So when you get a cut, the tissue, tissue releases thromboplastin. And then that triggers thrombinase. And ACE is an enzyme, anything with ACE in it. And so thrombinase turns prothrombin to thrombin. So when you see prothrombin, think prethrombin. So prothrombin turns into thrombin, which turns fibrinogen to fibrin. And fibrin is what makes the fibrous little particles that actually create the clot. Now there's many factors involved and lots of different numbered clotting factors and, and different things, but this is the simplified version. And we need to talk about this because we want to know where each of these anticoagulants works within that system. So the first one to talk about is unfractionated heparin. So that's your basic sub-Q heparin that we're going to give. It's um, given as DVT prophylaxis subcutaneously, usually about twice a day. It can be also given IV for DVT treatment. It can also be given IV during surgery as well if they're doing a vascular surgery where they need to uh, make sure that the blood's not clotting as they're working on the vessel. So heparin is an antithrombin medication, so it inhibits the, the thrombin-mediated conversion of fibrinogen to fibrin, so it doesn't allow the fibrin to form. The lab tests that we use are the PTT and the ACT, 
So just know your norms there and what the therapeutic levels are. So with PTT, the normal is 24 to 36 seconds. So that means if you sliced one of your earlobes, it would um, take 30, 30 seconds to clot. And for it to be in therapeutic range, we want it to be 46 to 70 seconds. So in order to, to demonstrate that you're getting enough of heparin, they're gonna slice your other earlobe and it's gonna count, they're gonna count and it's gonna take 46 to 70, so like 60 seconds to clot. And that is how they uh, would used to test it before lab tests were available. They would just uh, do a little cut of the ear and start counting. The ACT is uh, normal is 70 to 120 seconds and therapeutic would be 100 to 240 seconds. So things about heparin. Um, it's given subcutaneously and we're usually gonna do that in the abdomen or iliac crest. It's easiest just to do the abdomen. We wanna rotate sites. And so um, uh, usually they'll do left lower quadrant first, then rotate clockwise. So you always want to look at where it was last given and then rotate clockwise. Um, you can hold the skin fold during the injection as you inject it. However, most people have enough abdominal fat that you don't really need to do that. You can just kind of dart it in there. Uh, don't rub the site afterwards and let the patient know not to rub it because that'll lead to bruising. Uh, there are some complications that can occur with heparin, and one is DIC, disseminated intravascular coagulation. The proteins that control clotting become overactive. It also uh, can lead to HIT, which is heparin-induced thrombocytopenia. This is a severe sudden drop in platelet count and an increase in thrombosis. And then there's another side effect that is not related to clotting, but it's osteoporosis. So uh, long-term heparin use can lead to osteoporosis. The antidote, if somebody gets too much, is protamine sulfate. So um, it's also in surgery, if they're using it for vascular surgery, they will have heparinized the patient during the procedure and then the surgeon's gonna say, we're done, go ahead and reverse them. And then the anesthesiologist will do a, an equation based on the patient's weight and how much heparin they've received. Uh, and then they'll calculate a dose of protamine sulfate. Another time that that may be useful is that heparin is given, in, it's available in many different strengths. And it's changed now that they, they, they should not all be kept in the same drawer and they should look different. It used to be you could have um, 5,000 units per ml next to 10,000 units per ml next to 25,000 units next to 50,000 units uh, next to 100,000 units. So um, it would be very easy in a rush to grab the wrong vial, right? You just open the drawer and you see heparin and you grab it and you go, and then you give it to somebody. Uh, and then you realize, you look at the, the bottle afterwards and you realize, uh-oh, uh big trouble. So uh, they could bleed out. So we, that's why we know we have an uh, alternative antidote is protamine sulfate. So if, if a heparin mistake occurs, that's what we can order, protamine sulfate. The next medication is low molecular weight heparin, which is enoxaparin, Lovenox. And it's not enoxaparin because it's not heparin, warfarin, or aspirin. It is heparin, warfarin, enoxaparin. So this is also a use sub-Q for DVT prophylaxis, and it's an antithrombin, so it again inhibits that thrombin-mediated conversion of fibrinogen to fibrin. So some benefits of this, it's one-third the weight of heparin, so it has an increased bioavailability. It has an increased half-life, so it lasts longer, and a decrease in bleeding complications. 
It's also less likely to lead to HIT and osteoporosis, and it has a more predictable dose response. So enoxaparin comes in pre-measured syringes, they're safety syringes. Uh, you should not be removing the air bubble, you should not be releasing any of the medication. They come in weight-based doses, one milligram per kilogram, so there's usually, uh, you can get 30 milligrams, 40 milligrams, 60, 90, all different levels. Uh, you should not be wasting it and trying to calculate your own dose. If the, if the exact dose that you need is, that's ordered is not available, call the pharmacy and get it. I've, I've heard of nurses doing crazy things where they're trying to squirt out a little bit and pretend like that's accurate, and it's not. I don't think there's even measurements on the syringe, so don't do that. So we want to keep the air bubble in. We're going to use the same sites, the abdomen, really at crest, usually abdomen, rotate sites, don't aspirate, hold during hold the skin during the injection if you need to, and then don't rub the site. So this one's only partially reversible with protamine sulfate because it's a, a different variety of heparin. It's a low molecular weight, so it's not going to be fully reversible, but partially with the same medication, protamine sulfate. Next is warfarin or Coumadin, and this is a PO medication. This is an oldie, and it is um, kind of a, it was the standard of care for a long time. It's a vitamin K antagonist, and so it inhibits the activation of vitamin K, uh, the coagulation factors that are dependent upon that. So the measurement for Coumadin is the INR, and normal is 0.75 to 1.25. Therapeutic is two to three. So we're always gonna check the INR before we give uh, Coumadin. Therapeutic levels take 48 to 72 hours to achieve. So that's why you may see a patient that's on Levinox or heparin and warfarin at the same time because they are waiting for the therapeutic levels of the warfarin to build up. The antidote is vitamin K and vitamin K is found in green leafy vegetables so broccoli, spinach, kale, that kind of stuff and so we don't want them eating a whole lot of that. Now, the rule is you can have whatever you normally have. So if you have like a spinach salad once a week, great, stick with that. But this is not the time to go on an all-kale smoothie diet. It also interacts with certain drugs, some barbiturates, NSAIDs, uh, anti-seizure medications, and some herbal supplements. So we need to know what uh, the patient's on. And so commonly the overlap is going to be five days if they're on uh, heparin or something in addition to this. They have to have close lab monitoring. So while they're in the hospital, they'll be drawing the INR every day. Once they're discharged on a regular dose, they'll have to go in usually once a week for lab draws. So that's kind of a pain. They gotta drive somewhere and go get their blood taken every week. Uh, the other thing about it is that the doctor might mix and match the dosages. In other words, they'll say take two milligrams Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and take three milligrams Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday. That's confusing, right? And these are older people, and, and you know why make it so hard on them? Um, but that is sometimes how they how they do it. And then they'll the doctor may um, adjust their dose based on their lab draws. So some newer medications that have come out in the last few years. First one is rivaroxaban or Zarelto, and this is a PO med, so there's no injections, and there's no need to be routinely monitored like warfarin. Patients can eat whatever they want, so it's not influenced by vitamin K, so they can eat as much spinach and kale as they want to. And Xarelto was found to be more effective in preventing DVTs and PEs than Levinox. 
So when Zarelto came out a few years ago, everybody thought, hey, miracle drug, you don't have to get shots, you don't have to go get lab draws, you can eat whatever you want, perfect, right? And I thought, you know, just give it a couple years and they're gonna start saying it causes cancer or something. And sure enough, now you'll see the lawyer commercials, um, you know, have you or someone you love been harmed by taking Zarelto? Call this number right now. And they have class action lawsuits. And it's basically just because people have um, bled excessively and some of them have died, but um, the drug's doing its job. It's a, it's a coagulant, it thins the blood, it makes you bleed. So not really sure where they're gonna go with those cases, but there are class action suits uh, pending there. So the other thing is Eliquis. And that is um, Apixaban, so it's in the same class as Zorelto, Rivaroxaban. And they're both anti-factor XA drugs. Uh, that's, that's where they work within the clotting cascade. So again, it's complicated. Uh, there's, you know, there's a lot of um, factors involved, but this one is an anti-factor XA. So Apixaban is the anticoagulant for treatment of VTEs. And it's been available in Europe since uh, 2012, and it was approved in the U.S. in 2014. And it's used to reduce the risk of stroke and blood clots in people who have AFib, which is not caused by a heart valve problem, and also DVT and DVT prevention. So the thing with uh, Apixaban, Eliquis, is that um, it was shown when they started giving it to people right after surgery, you know, we want some clotting after surgery, right? Right? We want the... Um, incision to set up and it wasn't it was it was remaining kind of boggy and juicy and so um, what they discovered is that you want to start this a day or two after surgery so what happens now is a lot of patients will be getting anoxaprine in the hospital and then they're going to be charged discharged home on Eliquis and so that's going to cause confusion they're going to ask why you're giving them shots they're supposed to get a pill that's why so they'll be discharged home uh, on this but we can't give it to them right after surgery because it will not let their incision set up. And with these two, there is no antidote. The next medication is good old aspirin. And I think this is kind of funny. These other meds are very expensive, and a lot of doctors are, are reverting back to just plain old aspirin, acetosalicylic acid. It inhibits the um, uh, XA also, the factor XA, just like the previous two that we talked about. Decreases thrombin formation and it's practically free. So um, this can be given 325 milligrams, usually once or twice a day, depending on the size of the patient, and it can be given um, starting the evening of surgery. So I did a price comparison on goodrx.com, and the 30-day supply of these medications, there's quite a wide range, and this is a discount pharmacy too, so you might get charged more elsewhere. Uh, warfarin is about $7.67 for 30 days, Eliquis, $228. Zarelto, $452. Heparin, $39. Enoxaprin, $272 per 30 days. And aspirin, $0.78. Cents. So I think it's kind of hilarious uh, for the drug companies because now a lot of doctors are just going back to the aspirin and they're not getting all their money. Sorry. So the reason that we want to give um, anticoagulants, they need to be started in joint patients within 24 hours and not a minute later. So within with joint patients, they need to be started within 24 hours of the end of surgery. So you need to note when that surgery end time was. Well, we want to prevent clots, but the big, biggest danger with clots is that it could break loose and travel to the heart or a branch of the pulmonary artery, and it could be a pulmonary embolism. 
that can result in pulmonary infarction or right heart strain. And what happens there is that blood can't enter the lungs. So there's no blood in the left heart to be pumped to the rest of the body. And that leads to circulatory collapse and that leads to death. So the right heart is being strained because it's trying to pump blood into the lungs, but it can't because there's a blockage there. Okay, and so what the patient's gonna experience is sudden sharp chest pain. And when we hear chest pain, we wanna think cardiac, right? So we wanna ascertain where it is. They can point to it. Usually they can point right where it is, like right exactly where the blockage is because it hurts. They have extreme apprehension, a sense of impending doom. They say they feel like they're gonna die. They'll have um, difficulty breathing, hyperventilation. They may have a cough and they may cough up some blood and that will be from the um, lung tissue that's, that's dying. So this is an emergency and what we need to do is uh, position them, sit them up, put them on O2 and medication. So we're gonna give them morphine probably and that's gonna cause uh, vasodilation as well as decrease their anxiety and pain. We need to prevent further clotting so they're gonna uh, be on an anticoagulant right away uh, probably heparin IV, and then we have to dis dissolve the clot. So they'll do a clot buster, or they may do a high dose of heparin. They may possibly um, go in and, and do surgery and grab the clot and remove it out endoscopically. And if someone has had a history of clots and or history of PE, they will put in uh, something like a Greenfield filter, which would be in their vena cava, and it would trap any clots that break loose from the legs before they get to the heart or the lungs. Okay, there's a couple of uh, math problems about heparin infusion. So take a look at those and work those out, either alone or in your groups, make sure you understand them. It's just basic math. Take your dosage on hand, over the amount on hand, and calculate it. So make sure that, the, um, uh, that you know how the problem is being set up. And that is that. So that does it for the horrors of post-op complications. As you can see, there are a lot of things that can go wrong, but they're all very preventable and you need to be on your toes to recognize the signs of them happening early on. So all of this PowerPoint is really the basis for med surge nursing. Every post-op patient is gonna be at risk for all of these things. So make sure that you know this stuff inside and out because it's gonna come up later again and again. Throughout the rest of this class, we're gonna be referring back to it about things that can happen and then in your other classes as well. So this is really um, the basis for floor nursing. So there's a lot that can go wrong, but you don't have to be scared, you just have to be prepared. <laughs>